0: Welcome to today's Church Central podcast. We're a family of churches across Birmingham. To find out more, head to churchcentral.org.uk. If you remember, we're spending the summer in the book of Psalms and a big part of what we're doing is simply inviting the whole church on this journey of reinvigorating our prayer lives. The best part of Two and a half thousand years now, the Psalms have been teaching God's people from every background, every generation, how to connect with God and abide in him through all the different challenges and trials of life. And to that end, what we're going to be looking at today is how to pray through our fears, how to not push them down or deny them while not letting them take us over, but to pray through them and process them with God. And so, without any further ado, let's take a closer look at Psalm 3 and see what it has to teach us. First thing I want you to notice is the heading. Uh, If you look in your Bible, it will say something like this at the top of this psalm. It will say, it's a Psalm of David regarding the time David fled from his son Absalom. So this psalm is birthed in a very real life situation. To cut a very long story short, towards the end of David's life, his son formed an army and staged a successful coup against him. You want to read the whole story? It's found over in 2 Samuel 15, but basically David has to flee from his palace and the capital city, and he scarpers to the hills with just a few hundred people by his side, which, is nothing compared with the army of 12,000 foot soldiers that we're told are chasing him in hot pursuit. I think we can all agree, can't we, that this is a pretty decent reason for being afraid. And as we work through this psalm together, we're gonna learn a great deal from how David processed his fears. First thing he does is identify the source of his fear. Verse 1, he says this, O oh Lord, I have so many enemies, so many are against me, so many are saying, God will never rescue him. Now what's freaking him out the most here? Well, verse one, it's how many people are against him. Straight away, David is identifying the source of his fear. Where's his fear coming from? Well, he's got 12,000 trained men hunting him down to kill him. It's this very clear, physical, identifiable source of fear. His life is in grave danger. But I think there's also something else going on here. It's like his fear is two sided. There's this clear physical threat, but there's another layer to it. His enemies are spreading a message against David. And what are they saying? Well, have a look in verse 2. It says, God will never rescue him. In other words, God's through with him, there's no more favor or salvation left for him. So this isn't just a physical attack on his life. Now, this is a much deeper attack on his whole identity. Now at this point, I think it helps to remember something of David's history. Uh, If you recall, while he was still a youth, one of the most important prophets in all of Israel shows up at his family home, sent by God with this message that God's calling one of the greatest kings in Israel's history out of that household. And he goes through all of David's older brothers who were the obvious choices, but none of them is God's chosen one. Eventually, they, they summon David, who has been overlooked thus far. He's out in the middle of nowhere looking after the family sheep. And God says, he's the one. That's the story of David. Out of sheer grace, God elevated him from obscurity to the highest status in the land. And really, from that point on, God consistently protects him vindicates him again and again, and abundantly blesses him. But there comes a point where David starts to take all of this for granted, and he begins to see those gifts as something he can use for self-advantage. And if you know the story, it all gets incredibly sordid. He sees a woman he wants. He forces himself on her, gets her pregnant, then to compound all of that, conspires to kill her husband. And really from that point on, things quickly begin to unravel. His family falls apart, his kingdom falls apart, his whole life falls apart. And so what his son Absalom and the army of enemies are capitalizing on here is the belief that God is now through with David. He was God's chosen king, but not anymore. That this exalted king is now fleeing for his life from his own son. And so what's under threat here is not just his life but his whole identity. Who is David now if he's not a successful king and father and for that matter if God's no longer with him? So there's the obvious source of fear. People wanna kill him. Then there's this other thing, the attack on his identity. Who is he? What meaning does his life have if he's not king and God's abandoned him? And so, How does he pray through this? Well, look at verse three. He says, but you, O Lord, are a shield around me. You're my glory, the one who holds my head high. I cried out to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy mountain. It's like there's this shift. He he turns his focus away from his circumstances and onto God and God's character. He identifies the source of his fear and secondly he chooses to focus on God and more specifically he uses these images to think of God. He's a shield, he's my glory and he's the lifter of my head. Now why do you think David would use those three metaphors to describe God in this scenario? Let's focus on each of them. First of all, he says, you are a shield around me. Now I think when we think of a shield, we, we immediately think of protection, don't we? It's like a shield keeps bad things from happening to you. So we kind of assume that David's saying here, you're gonna protect me and rescue me so that bad things won't happen to me. But let's think about this a little more. It, it, if you strap on a shield at the beginning of the day what's your assumption? Is it that the shield is going to prevent horrible things from happening to you? No, I suggest you put on a shield because you assume horrible things are going to happen. What a shield does is protect the most vital part of you from being damaged when the bad things happen. You see the difference here? He assumes that things are going to get worse But in the same breath, he is still able to say that God is a shield around him. In other words, God's not going to prevent bad things from happening. But God is going to be right there so close to him, protecting the most vital part of who he is from being swept away in the sheer onslaught. And so he reckons on the fact he could well die, but he's still able to say, God is my shield which I'd suggest is incredibly helpful. Because as we begin to identify the source of our fears and start to pray through them, I think one of our assumptions can be, can't it, that this is a sign that God has somehow abandoned me. That, that this is a sign that God's no longer present with me. He's deserted me. He's against me. It's like the underlying assumption is that God's role is to keep bad things from happening to me. But that's not the God of the Bible. That God doesn't exist. And that's certainly not the promise that God gives us. The promise is that when life in this broken, messed up world is hard and when horrible things inevitably happen, God is still right there with us. Which means that seasons of pain and tragedy might well be the closest we get to experiencing God's presence with us. This could draw us closer to God than we've ever been before. Now, don't get me wrong, sometimes God does magnificently rescue us from trouble, but other times the trouble is the tool he uses to shape the hearts, the minds, the character of the people he so dearly loves. And so... David begins by saying, whatever happens, God's a shield around me, protecting the most vital part of who I am. I might die here, but God is still my shield. Our the next two metaphors touch on what the most important part of him is. He says, you're my shield, and then secondly, you are my glory. Now, what does that mean? And why would David need to say that? Well, the word glory speaks of something that is weighty or significant, or important. So to say that God has glory, or for us to give glory to God, is to say that he's the most significant, the most weighty, the most important person to know. That's what it means to glorify God. Of course, people can have glory too, can't they? In fact, in 1 Chronicles 29, right towards the end of David's life, uh, a little while after the events that led to Psalm 3, it says this of David. So David, son of Jesse, reigned over all Israel. He reigned over Israel for 40 years, seven of them in Hebron, 33 in Jerusalem. He died at a ripe old age, having enjoyed long life, wealth and honour. That word translated honour is the exact same word that we find in Psalm 3, in that context translated as glory. So glory is about your status. It's about your honour. It's about whatever it is that gives you significance and importance. And for David, as we've seen, what defined him was this incredible story of rising from obscurity as a humble shepherd boy to a great king. But in this psalm, that's been taken away from him. What's more, any illusion that he was a successful father has been well and truly shattered and his moral integrity, well that's in ruins too. So at the lowest point in his life, David comes to God and says, you are my glory. You're the one who gives me significance. You're the source of my identity and meaning. And he has to say this because something else has become his glory, his wealth, his power, his military successes. He he, he had his own glory, but ended up squandering it. It's like in praying through his fears, David recognises that he has misplaced his glory. Because all the eggs were in the basket of being king. And once that's called into question when he crumbles, because who is he if he's not a king? And from that place, it begins to dawn on him that his significance is ultimately found in who he is in relation to God. That's all he needs for meaning and worth in life. Which leads to the third metaphor. He concludes, you're the one who holds my head high. He's saying, I don't have any reason to hold my head up high anymore. No reason to be confident in myself right now. So he redirects his focus from himself and he looks to God and he says, you're the one who enables me to hold my head up high, even when it looks like I'm an utter failure. Now, how can he be so sure What's the source of his confidence here? And for that matter, what can be the source of our confidence when we take the same route? Well, look what he says next. Verse four, I cried out to the Lord and he answered me from his holy mountain. He's praying and he's incredibly confident that God is answering despite being this morally compromised, failed father and king. How can he be so confident? Well, it has nothing to do with David. and has everything to do with where God is answering from. He's answering from the holy mountain. The holy mountain is a reference to the city of Jerusalem, and more specifically, the site of the future temple which housed the tabernacle. He's saying, I'm on the run. I fear for my life, yet you are my shield You're my glory. You're the lifter of my head. And when I pray, I know that you answer because you're answering from the tabernacle, from the hotspot of your presence in Jerusalem. Now, let's just reflect on this a bit more. Let's try and dig a bit deeper here. What is it that happened there on that holy mountain in the tabernacle that would allow a sinful man to be forgiven and shown grace. Well, that's where sacrifices were offered as a substitute for the wrongdoer, the animal bearing the guilt and covering over the sin. And so David is looking to the substitute that both deals with his sin and gives him confidence that God has forgiven him and is still for him despite his circumstances. Now for us today, as we Consider this from the other side of the cross where Jesus died as a substitute for us, as we remember his life, his death, his resurrection on our behalf, as we see how Jesus covered over our sins by absorbing into himself what we deserve, providing covering for us and a source of new life and grace for those of us who would turn towards him. As we consider this other son of David who was executed by the Romans near that holy mountain, All of this allows us to pray through this prayer of David as followers of Jesus and go on the exact same journey. And look where it leads. Verse five, I lay down and slept, yet I woke up in safety for the Lord was watching over me. I'm not afraid of 10,000 enemies who surround me on every side. He's identified the source of his fear he's looked to God he's realigned his priorities he's looked the substitute has done for him what he couldn't do for himself and now he knows he can rest in God's mercy and grace even if a spear goes through his chest and he doesn't wake up the next morning he's not afraid because he knows that God is his glory and that God's commitment to him is even stronger than death. And so, in the end, he comes to a place of peace. But at the same time, that doesn't cancel his desire for vengeance. Verse seven, he prays, Arise, O Lord, rescue me, my God. Slap all my enemies in the face. Shatter the teeth of the wicked. Let's be honest. I think some of us are probably a bit put out by this kind of language, aren't we? We we kind of wish it wasn't in the Bible. We find it a bit awkward, a bit embarrassing. But just think about it. What would you rather David did here? Should he suppress his emotions, just deny the fact there's real injustice taking place? Or would you rather he took matters into his own hands and take the violent route? On reflection... Isn't it better that he prays through his feelings? And let's get real. There are many things in the world that are worth getting riled about. What are you supposed to do with that? Act like it's not there. Just gloss over it. No, you pray through it. So, as a profound act of faith, the third stage in David's processing his fears is to leave vengeance In the hands of God. David commits his enemies over to God's justice and asks God to take care of them and if you read on in the story you'll see God does exactly that. Absalom, David's son who was hunting him down, prided himself in his long flowing hair and in the midst of a battle his hair gets caught in a tree leaving him a sitting or Should I say, a hanging target for someone to hurl a spear through his chest. David didn't need to lift a single finger, but he processes his emotions with God, which enables him to deal with his anger and desire for vengeance and leave it all in the hands of God. Now, I think this is such an important lesson for us today. I want you to hear this. God can take your anger, but whatever you do, don't let it take you over. Don't bury it, but do pray it through. All of which leads David to a place of recognising where deliverance comes from, and it's not him. Verse 8, Victory comes from you, O Lord. May you bless your people. Now look, This is gonna land differently for each of us. But as we draw to a close, would you just consider what it would look like for you to take the same journey as David? There's fear in your life right now. What'd it look like to identify that, to, to dig to the root of it, come to a place of turning to God and trusting his character, turning that circumstance or that enemy over to him, in order to find peace or perhaps there's a dark cloud hanging over your life that sense of where's my life going nothing's working who am I where's my significance some of us might need to do some real soul searching because it could be that your fear comes from misplaced glory admittedly none of us is king of a small nation state in the Middle East so none of us has that problem to deal with but We perhaps find our glory in our own status and significance, or we're trying to get our meaning from that relationship, or we think if we could just get that grade or that step in our career, then that will give us the validation we need for everything to be okay. Perhaps we're trying to achieve a certain look or a certain edgy tone on social media. It's like we build our sense of who we are on the most flimsy, the most ridiculous things at times, and on meaningful good things too. But there will come a day, whether it's as traumatic as what David faced, or simply the hundreds of minor disappointments that fill everyday life. When it feels overwhelming, won't you see it as an opportunity to search for glory in the right location? Or I don't know. Maybe you're listening to this and you're carrying bitterness or anger at how others have treated you and in all honesty it's not leading to a whole lot of peace in your life. Let me ask you, what would it look like for you to turn your enemies, those who have wronged you, over to God and leave vengeance in His hands? Look, wherever Psalm 3 meets you... Won't you use this prayer of David as a vehicle to move from a place of fear to a place of rest, to see God for who he is, to abide in him, to experience the blessings that ultimately can only come from him.